All right. Interesting couple of days at, at my house. Uh, Carter and Mackenzie, my older two, are, are off uh, riding horses in Missouri with their grandparents, having a great time. They do that every year about this time. And, and we decided that it would be a great time for, for Leah and Harper to go on just a little mother-daughter trip. So they're hanging out in Nashville and seeing some family there, uh, which means that I'm all alone in my house, which does not mean that I'm lonely. Something happened yesterday that I wasn't used to. I I sat down and the remote was where I left it. (laughs) And I got to pick what I watched. And I've picked what I've eaten for for a day and a half now. And this is going to continue for several days to come. Uh, So if you see me later this week just looking refreshed, uh, my dog and I are having a great week. It's really good. Really good. She keeps me very good company. So... Uh, it's been an interesting week. Uh, we've been talking in, in this sermon series that we've been doing for the past uh, month or so uh, through the summer about failure and what can we learn from it? How should we feel about it? Because there are so many of us that are so afraid of failing that we're unwilling, unwilling to get off the sidelines and into the arena. And God doesn't call us, Scripture tells us, to a spirit of timidity, but one of boldness. And so if we're going to be people that are boldly stepping forward and taking chances and risk for the kingdom of God, we have to deal with this question of what do we do with failure? What do we do with our fear of failure? And so today as we're wrapping up this series, we're going to be talking about how to evaluate and understand uh, past failures and, and think about how that should shape our present and future behavior. You know, and when it comes to Scripture, there are so many things in the Bible that it's very clear. There is a right and there is a wrong. There is sin and there is righteousness. There is good behavior and there is wrong behavior. There's things where it's just very clear, and those are the, uh, often the easier instructions to follow. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal other people's stuff if it doesn't belong to you. Don't do those things. And when it comes to making those decisions between right and wrong, uh, if we're able to do that, that is morality. You're a moral person if you make the right decisions when it is clear what is right and what is wrong. That is morality. And yet so often in the Christian walk, in the Christian life, uh, it's not necessarily morality, right and wrong, that guides our decision-making. So often in life, uh, it's not that it's very clear that there is a sin decision and there is a good decision, that, uh, a righteous decision that we can make. And when it is, it's morality. But when there are circumstances involved, we need wisdom. When there are circumstances involved where you kind of go, boy, I, I can take this scripture over here and it would seem to encourage me to go in this direction, but I can take this other scripture in the same circumstances and it feels like I should go in this direction. How do I know what to do? And it doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't tell us what to do in those moments. It means that God gives us wisdom to interpret and understand and evaluate his word and our circumstances and try and navigate those moments to figure out what is the best path. You know, making those kinds of decisions doesn't require morality, it requires wisdom. Uh, And so, for example, if you're trying to think, well, what is he talking about? What's the difference between right and wrong and wisdom? Um, If you are a parent and you ask your child, why were you late getting home last night? What were you up to? That child then in that moment 
has a decision whether to tell you a truth or a lie. There is a moral imperative to tell the truth in that moment. There is something that you know the truth of and your parent wants to know it. You can either tell them the truth or tell them a lie. Your morality will guide you in this moment. Now, on the other hand, as you grow older and you're no longer a child and you're put in a situation where, uh, where your spouse or a friend asks you, do I look fat in these pants? Wisdom will guide how you handle this situation. There's no moral imperative on what is the absolute right or wrong decision and how to proceed in this moment, but wisdom sure has a lot to say about it. The wisdom of your experience, the wisdom of who they are, and the wisdom of who you are, and the relationship that you have, and the relationship you want to have tomorrow will guide you in the telling of truth and how you deliver that. So whether you tell the truth or a lie can at times be a moral thing and at times be a wisdom thing. And when we look at failure and try and evaluate what am I supposed to get out of the, the, this failure experience that I've recently had, how do I evaluate that? You need to do an evaluation. And if it is a moral lesson that you should have learned from, that there was a moral failure, then hopefully what you learn from that is how to avoid that temptation and how to, to, to learn from that, and how to, uh, to grow in the future so that you're not failing morally in the future. But if it's a wisdom thing, you're constantly having to receive new inputs and constantly having to evaluate circumstances. And it may be that in your life you took a risk on actually trying to do something and it failed. Maybe in a small way, maybe it's a catastrophic failure, but you have to go back and say, man, why did I fail in that moment? I learned an Air Force term earlier this year. Uh, you get to do a lot of those when you're in leadership conversations at Northwest, thanks to the Colonel. Um, Dennis is, is always willing to teach us, and he doesn't just teach you what it means, he just uses the terminology and expects you to catch up. Uh, and so we were at camp this year. Dennis, you know where this is going. We're at camp this year, and I get a text that says, hey, elders meeting next week. We're going to talk about prayer items, some things coming up this summer, and the CRC hogwash. And I'm at camp, and I'm thinking, our week's going really well, and suddenly one of my elders wants to talk about our camp hogwash. Like, we're in trouble. I don't know what's going wrong, but he knows about the hogwash, and we're going to talk about it. <laughs> Fortunately, our Camp Rock Creek uh, head cook was sitting there next to me, and I said, is there any chance, is there any chance that hogwash is an Air Force term that has a good meaning? And she says, no. Oh, she goes, what? There's, hogwash isn't an Air Force term at all. I said, oh, well, that's too bad. And she goes, what? If it was, what do you think it would even mean? I said, like, to evaluate something and see if it went really well? And she goes, oh, a hot wash. Oh, and I said, what's a hot wash? Well, it just means after you do something, you look back and see if it went well, if it went poorly, if you can learn something from it so you do better in the future. Said, well, that's great news. A hot wash is so much better than talking about our hogwash. <laughs> I was incredibly relieved. And I immediately texted the group and I'd say, oh, I think Dennis had a typo. And what he really means is this Air Force term, which means I was very intelligent that day. People were impressed. <laughs> Books were written in my honor. You have to be able to look at your failures and do a hot wash. 
You have to be able to look back and say what worked, what didn't, what can we learn, how can we evaluate it. And today what we're going to be talking about is how in, in our Christian walk as individuals and as a church and as a community, what do we need to learn from past experiences, especially those where we fail? And there's a couple of sayings that I think might help us gain some wisdom. And these aren't Christian sayings. These are just commonly used expressions that people use. One of them is uh, often credited uh, to Albert Einstein, although there's actually no documentary evidence that it came from Einstein. Uh, Occasionally people say it's from Ben Franklin or Mark Twain because this is the kind of wisdom they often have. But actually the earliest uh, written record of something like this quote that the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. You've heard this saying before? Um, The earliest record of this is is in 1981 uh, in a handbook for Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, That it's a book that is written for people that are trying to come out of their addiction to drugs. And it says, listen, if you're putting yourself in the same circumstances with the same people and the same temptations that keep resulting in your failure, why are you so surprised that you're still in the same struggles and addictions and challenges in your lives? That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And it says, why do you keep doing the same things and expecting a different result? And we use this all the time. It's wisdom. It gives us an idea of how to understand our past failures and adjust our future behavior. Now, here's two other pieces of wisdom. These actually are from Thomas Edison. Quotes of a guy who is a famous inventor. The first one of these quotes says this. Many of life's failures are people who didn't realize how close they were to success when they gave up. The second one is this, I haven't failed, I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. That's a good definition, isn't it? Wisdom. Now here's the thing, if you look at the wisdom of definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different result, and Thomas Edison's experience of overcoming the obstacles in his life, those pieces of wisdom would guide you in completely opposite behaviors. One says, if you keep failing and failing and failing and failing, it's time for you to quit and try something else. The other one says, if you keep failing and failing and failing, keep persevering because success is bound to come to the one who doesn't give up. So what do we do? How do we get through these moments? And and we need to have these these two versions of wisdom that speak to us about evaluating failure to understand that, that failure doesn't always mean stop and run away. Failure does not always mean you're headed in the wrong direction, so bail out and get out of here. Failure is an indicator that there are lessons that are waiting to be learned, but it doesn't always mean what we think it does. And to show you how this plays out in Acts chapter 5, I want you to see a similar instruction that's going to be given here in this passage. In Acts chapter 5, let me see where I want to start. Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 17, it says, The high priest and all his associates who are members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Sadducees are the religious leaders that have control over the temple and the religious practices in Jerusalem. The Pharisees are a grassroots movement that's all over Israel. The Sadducees have power. They have influence. They're the keepers and interpreters of the law. These guys are the ones with kind of institutional control in Jerusalem. And they're jealous. 
You see, we're at the point in the story where Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, and he's ascended to heaven, and his spirit has come down on the apostles, and they've started preaching that this man, that the Sadducees and high priests and the leaders in Jerusalem had crucified, that this man was, in fact, God's son and the Messiah. They don't like that they're preaching this way, and they don't like that they're performing incredible acts of power, and they don't like that the crowd has has come to really respect them. So they were jealous. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, and as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. That is funny, isn't it? This is a good story. On hearing this uh, report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Sanhedrin and the Sadducees have the apostles arrested and they put them in the public jail and they put guards at the door and they lock the doors and they they leave them there overnight. Uh, God comes and releases them in the middle of the night. They go back and God says, listen, I need you to go back to preaching and doing what you were doing before you got arrested. They go do that. The Sanhedrin sends for the apostles in the morning and they get there and there's the guards and there's the locked doors and they open them and the apostles are gone. This is hilarious, by the way. This is really, really funny stuff. And, and you have to ask, where did they go? Did they escape? How far could they be? Uh, they're just running through all the possibilities. How did they get out? And what is going on? And someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Yes. Doing exactly what you arrested them for. They got out and went back to work. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. The apostles had become so popular with the crowds in Jerusalem, the very crowds that just a few weeks earlier had crucified Jesus at the orders of the Sanhedrin, that they're now going through this whole experience very differently. The apostles have become so popular that when the guards and soldiers go to arrest them a second time, they basically have to say, "Uh, excuse me, gentlemen, I hate to interrupt your sermon, but if you wouldn't mind, could you please come back to trial? We would use force, except that we don't have the power in this crowd to do it. We realize that at this point, you're so popular, you're basically in charge of how today goes. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. 
We're witnesses of these things. So is the Holy Spirit on whom, whom God has given to those who obey him. The apostles do something here that, that I, for me, I have to experience as a parent. Can you imagine giving your kid instructions? If your teenage kid, 14, 15 years old, came to you and said, uh, listen, I'm dropping out of high school and I want to go uh, on mission trips instead of high school. As a parent, I can't help but think that I wouldn't tell my kid, don't, no, you finish school and then go. Can you imagine if in a conversation like that, your kid looked up to you and said, listen, which is better for me to do? To listen to my earthly father or my heavenly father? I would not like that question one bit. <laughs> I just wouldn't. I'd be enraged. I'd be like, what, what is this? me and God are on the same team. That's how parenting works in this house. You can't pit us against each other. But that's what Peter is doing here with the Sanhedrin. What do you expect us to do? God told us, he let us out of jail and said, go preach. You put us in jail and said, don't preach. But since we're not in jail, we're going to go preaching. Who are we going to listen? You or God? We have to follow God. His spirit has given us what we need and we have to obey him. Well, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Now, this guy, is, is Gamaliel, is famously the teacher and rabbi who taught a young man named Saul. A young man named Saul of Tarsus, who would eventually come to be known as the Apostle Paul. Paul, who is the persecutor of the early Christians, who is the one who, who oversaw the care of the coats while the people stoned Stephen, is a student of this rabbi. And he's not just a rabbi that comes up in Scripture. He's a rabbi that's known throughout Jewish history as one of the greatest rabbis of his time and history. A, a great, pious, and, and devout uh, member of the community, incredibly respected, someone who knew the law forward, backward, upside down, and inside out. This guy was really well respected. And he stands up in the midst of this crowd, and here's the advice that he gives. He addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Well, his, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. They had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is 
the Messiah. This story has so many backs and forths, twists and turned. They're arrested and are miraculously set free from the jail without even the guards at the doors knowing. They immediately went back to preaching. The soldiers were afraid to arrest them. The Sanhedrin wants to kill them right there. And probably the biggest surprise in this story is that they don't. And they don't because this rabbi stands up and has this, this example from history. That there were others before that some claimed to be the Messiah and they were killed and their followers dispersed. And so we've killed Jesus. Just give their followers a few minutes and they'll get bored and go away. Leave them alone. And here's his test. And you hear this come up in meetings of church leaders from time to time. Let's try this thing. If it succeeds, it is from God. And if it fails, it's from human origin. Now, here's the important thing to remember, is that this is not the teaching of the apostles. This is the teaching of someone who is in opposition to them. And I think that we need to be careful from time to time when we use this as our guide into interpreting failure. Because it's wisdom. And when it comes to evaluating your failures, the wisdom says that it's insanity to keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. But it also says that so many of life's failures were the people who quit one failure away from success. So what do we do? How do we understand failure? Do we use the wisdom here of Gamaliel who says, listen, if it fails, it's from humans, and if it succeeds, it's from God, and we use that as our lens to interpret all interactions and all events and all uh, experiments of faith? I think we get in trouble if we do. I don't think that failure is the best metric as to whether or not something is from God. And if you just limit it to just this story, just this story. If I were at a leadership meeting of the apostles in the day after this event took place, another way of interpreting this, if we're limiting it to failure, is that I was arrested uh, kind of twice, at least one and a half times, and at the end of the second trial, I was flogged. I was flogged. That's a bad day. We get confused because they left their flogging, rejoicing and celebrating and ignoring that it had just happened. And in fact, if anything, they're celebrating that they were worthy of suffering for the name. But man, I got to tell you, if it were me, I would be really stressed. I'd be calling together a, a, a meeting and saying, listen, we've got problems. The government doesn't like us. Uh, the persecution is getting real. Uh, I got flogged the other day. I don't know what's going on or where God is, but I'm suffering and I don't like it. I'm sick of all the failure that's going on in our ministry, and I just want a couple wins. Wouldn't it be easy if you're the apostles to interpret the events of that day differently? But they don't. They're not convinced that failure is of humanity and that success is of God. They're convinced of their values and of God's calling for them and their purpose, and they won't let anything get in the way of their attempt to see the kingdom of God succeed. But what if you fail? Then we'll try again. But what if it hurts? Then I'm worthy of suffering for Jesus. But what if, what if other people don't want you to do this and tell you to shut your mouths? Then we're going to go somewhere and open our mouths. 
Failure is not an indicator that God's not sending us where we're going. And the problems with that theory come up over and over and over again. The text that was read earlier of Isaiah chapter 6 is the call of the prophet Isaiah. And it's one of my favorite callings in all of Scripture. Because the call is this. I want you to go to my people. And Isaiah says, whoa, 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 great. I'll sign up for a mission trip. What's the plan? And the plan is that you're going to preach to people that won't listen. That sounds terrible. I don't have that problem. Alton listens and gives me feedback all the time. <laughs> Isaiah had problems. He'd, he'd go preach to people and they wouldn't listen. He'd go and call on them to change their hearts and their hearts were turned to callous stones so that they wouldn't be changed. Isaiah hears the call of his, his missionary assignment and the question that he asks is this, God, how long is this mission trip? going to last? Because it doesn't sound much fun. And the answer to Isaiah's question is, till you die and Israel ends. Till the end. Till the end. This is it. For the rest of your life, you're called to a ministry of failure. At the same time, what Isaiah ends up creating is the book of Isaiah, which gives us more descriptions about the coming suffering servant, Jesus, who is to come. Maybe it's no surprise that Isaiah understood the significance of the suffering servant. The Jesus who would come, would come later and not have overwhelming success and not build an earthly kingdom, but be the one that suffers for the sake of others and the sake of the kingdom. Failure is not a good indicator as to whether or not God has called you to the path that you're choosing. And if we look over and over again at the book of Acts, what we see in these early Christians is that that if they were like us, they would have had so many meetings to learn from their failures and give up their mission. In the chapter uh, right after this one in Acts 5, in in Acts 6, when they get there, they've got this problem where some of their widows are starving because of prejudice within this early Jewish Christian community got a prejudice problem that's resulting in widows being hungry. That's a big problem. And it would be easy for them to come together and say, listen, we've just started this thing, and if we are failing this badly at being united across divisions in our community, we, we probably just need to give up on this whole desire to have unity with diversity. We just need to bail out on that because that's too hard and and clearly we're failing. Uh, I tell you what, just go put that group over there in charge of feeding their widows and this group over here in charge of feeding our widows and that way prejudice doesn't affect people being hungry and unable to provide for themselves. But they don't. They don't let failure get in the way of God's call for them. God has called them to be this family that's united beyond the barriers that the world says should be there. And so they say, listen, we need to get a plan. Let's get some of the minority group who are respected by everyone and put them in charge of all of this so that that throughout this community, we're able to care for one another in the hard ways. Failure was an indicator not to back out, but to move forward with greater perseverance and with greater commitment. In the next chapter after that, in the chapters to follow, Stephen is stoned to death for proclaiming to people. And the people he's proclaiming to are people that were out-of-towners that have come into Jerusalem. And he starts preaching to them, and they completely reject his teaching. The proclaiming of the gospel, and they stone him dead right there on the spot. 
be easy to get together a meeting of the leaders and say, listen, this is a pretty big failure. Some of us are dying because of this message we're preaching. If God were really on our side, it doesn't feel like we'd be getting killed in the streets. If God were really on our side, wouldn't we be having greater successes? If God were for us, why are so many against us? But they don't. They don't use Gamaliel's wisdom. They reject this idea that failure is from humans and that success is from God. And what they say is, listen, success is baked in. The kingdom of God is already the winner. We have already overcome all the difficulties and challenges of this world. So what do we have to be afraid of if a few little failures along the way cause us to build perseverance, cause us to be overcomers, cause us to learn from what didn't work so it can work better in the future? Over and over again, the early Christians seem to suffer incredible setbacks. And then they keep going. They experience failure after failure. And instead of it becoming the definition of insanity, it becomes the definition of perseverance. It becomes the definition of faith and hope. It becomes the definition of being disciples of Jesus, the true suffering servant, who are saying over and over again, I don't care how many times I fail, I won't stop doing what God wants me to do. And to do that, you have to have an incredible sense of trust, an incredible commitment to learning, an incredible commitment to growth, an incredible commitment to being thankful to God, even in the midst of times when it feels like things aren't going well. God calls us to not be intimidated by failure. And God calls us to not sit in meetings with one another and conversations with one another and say, listen, let's just try it. If it fails, we'll go back to the way it used to be. Listen, let's get out here and let's try something that's bold and that requires our faith and commitment to step out and trust that God's going to see us through this. But if he doesn't, if it gets hard, if we fail a little bit, we can always go right back to the way it used to be and stay there in the status quo forever. We're pretty comfortable there. We've gotten good at being in that place. Why not? Failure is not an indication of whether or not you're on the path God is calling you to be on. And so you have to be very committed to your values and committed to the word and praying for guidance from the spirit and in conversations with one another, calling each other to perseverance and not to back out with timidity and with fear. Failure tells us to trust more, to learn, to grow, to be thankful. And sometimes it it teaches us that if you've been fishing all night and you haven't caught something, maybe it's time to cast your nets on the other side. God is comfortable with people that are willing to step forward and experiment in faith with a commitment to fail or succeed. We're going to keep doing what God wants us to do. I hope that in the past couple weeks as we've explored this, that what you've learned is that you can overcome the temptation to stay in the status quo. When you step out in faith, there is always going to be a season where you go into a fog that's so thick, you're not sure which way you're going or how long you're going to be in it and if it's safe to stay there or not. And the temptation when you're in the fog of failure is to always run straight back out the way you came. But if God has called you out of the sidelines... If God has called you into the arena, then there is something that you heard that said to you, 
take a step forward in faith. And if that voice was there to call you, God wasn't calling you just so you could take a step back as soon as things got hard. Keep moving forward through the fog of failure. At the end of the day, the only potential outcomes is that you'll succeed or you'll fail and grow in it in a way that you may not even know you needed to grow. Or you may fail and God will pick you up and show you that you're okay because he's still faithful and there for you, at which point you can grow in thanksgiving and in faith that there's nothing that will happen to you that God can't be there with you through it. If we're just willing to go where God calls us, he's going to see us through it. He'll see us through the fog as long as we don't run backwards. If you're here today and the fog of, of your life is that you've never made a decision to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, what the Bible tells us, if you will just believe and be baptized, you can be saved. And you enter into this lifelong journey, not of being timid, not of just focusing on morality, but of being someone that is called to live into the kingdom of God and to do great things for God. We're not called to have a spirit of timidity, but one of boldness. Today is the day that you make a commitment to that kind of a life. Come forward this morning as we stand and sing.